Hello everyone, welcome to Antibodies. This is our 25th bodysode, a segment where we discuss research papers with the first or last authors of the article. Joining me today is uh, three of our hosts. First, Dara from University of Paris-Saclay. Hello. Eugenio from Autonomous University of Mexico. Hello, welcome back. And Natalie Graham from a City of Hope Comprehensive Research Center. Hi. How are you guys doing? Life is good. Yes, excited. Okay. How about you, Jatin? I'm also doing good today, and I'm very excited to discuss this article titled Thymic Development of Gut Microbiota-Specific T-Cells. The first author of this paper is Daniel Zegera Ruiz, and he's joining us today to discuss this. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, without any more uh, delays, uh, Eugenio, I'll let you tell us more about our guest today. Of course. So, Daniel Segarra Ruiz is first author on this paper and a research associate with Professor Gretchen Lab at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Daniel received his bachelor's degree on pharmacy and biochemistry from Universidad Peruana Cayetano Heredia in Peru. Later, he received his master's in immunology and PhD from the University of Yale under the guidance of Professor Martin Kriegel, where he focused on the study of microbiota and autoimmune diseases. In 2018, he started his postdoc at the at Gretchen Dial Lab, first in the Baylor College of Medicine, and in 2020, the Gretchen Lab moved to the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where he has been working since then on the microbiota and T-cell development. He has received multiple awards through his scientific career, and he has been involved in multiple programs that promote the study of science in the Peruvian community. For instance, he was co-director of Science Clubs Peru and Serendipity, scientific mentorship program. Both programs are focused on helping undergrads and master's students from Peru to pursue postgrad programs in Europe and the USA. We are really happy and grateful for having you here today, Daniel. And before we start, I would like to uh, ask you if you could give any advice to uh, uh, all the young uh, scientists uh, from Latin America that uh, continually listen to this program. Oh, there are so many advices that I could give, but the most important one I think would be to not give up because it's really easy to have, you know, low scores in your GRE and your TOEFL, like a really poor written personal statements, but it's just a matter of practice and pursuing your dream. If it's something that you actually want to do, if it's something that you see yourself doing, just doing science for the next couple of years, uh, just don't give up and try to network as much as possible uh, because there's always someone that is willing to help you and to read your materials and just give you some good advice. Thank you. So we can move on with our uh, favorite part of the podcast, which is the joke. You're saying the joke is more important than the paper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. So are you guys ready for this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Why did the authors think there should be microbes in the thymus? Why? I don't know. Oh, you guys are, you guys are interested. Okay. <laughs> They had a gut feeling. <laughs> that one almost landed, almost landed. Okay, so for the next part of our uh, section is the terminology. And Natalie, I'll let you take this one. All right, for sure. Yeah, let's go over some of these terms just before we get into the paper so we know what we're talking about. So anytime you're talking microbiota and you got mice, you're definitely going to be using specific pathogen-free mice. So uh, this is just, you want to know kind of baseline that you don't have anything particularly bad or crazy in the mice before uh, doing your experiments. Do I have that right, Daniel? It's like, you know what's in there? Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next thing, you used one of your bacteria uh, in, in a tetramer. Could you tell us more about that? Well, actually the tetramer was used to identify these micro-specific T-cells. And the one that we used was specifically for segmented filamentous bacteria, which is our model organism, because it's something that we can track in our mice facility. And we can basically know that our room doesn't have this bacteria and we can uh, administer that like whenever we want. Because if we had chosen any other bacteria, it would be tricky because the number of uh, tetramers available to detect a specific bacteria is like 
really limited and most of that is available for viruses so actually mhc class one tetramers not mhc class two and the other thing is that is it's a little bit hard to control what microbes is going to be already colonizing mice that are coming from from jackson or whatever so working with sfp it's like there's so many tools already available that it allow us to to basically dissect properly what we're going to do with this uh, bacteria and its its effects on the immune system mm -hmm. that's pretty cool uh, another thing you use uh, is a t-cell induced colitis model um we use in my lab a dss colitis model so maybe you could talk about how the t-cell induced colitis model works and and what's different about it Yes, no, we use DSS plenty as well. Uh, the good thing about DSS is that it's super fast. Just seven days, five <laughs> days, whatever you want to do. It's a pretty fast response. You get your colitis, your histopathology is there. Nice. But the problem is that uh, since it's a chemical induced colitis, you have basically every single cell like epithelial and non-epithelial immune, everything's going to be reacting against this kind of induced inflammation. However, with the T-cell transfer colitis, it's all driven by T-cells, and it all depends on what cells we're injecting into the mice, but it's mostly CD4 uh, naive T-cells, basically, non-T-Rex, right? So that's why it takes a little bit longer. Uh, normally, it takes eight weeks compared to the seven days that takes uh, the DSS, but you can track uh, with the tetramers what uh, cells are being, uh, are proliferated in response to what uh, we can enrich the, the the microbiota of the recipient mice with whatever bacteria we want uh, or depleted with antibiotics and try to assess what changes in the gut are going to specifically affect the infiltrating T cells that we know uh, where they're coming from. So we can we can play uh, with the specific components of this uh, model using the T cell transfer colitis, which we cannot do with the SS. Yeah, very cool. Um... And then the next two terms, I, I think they kind of go together, even though they oppose each other, are clonal deletion and T-cell expansion. So, you know, T-cell expansion, we've, we've encountered a problem and we need tons and tons of T-cells. And then clonal deletion, you know, we need to eliminate this particular clone so it doesn't expand into something crazy. Do you have uh, anything to add to that? Uh, that's really interesting because that was one of the questions that was uh, repeated every time we got a revision back because the thing is that we were not addressing changes in selection so we didn't say anything about oh this is just stopping negative selection or this is uh enforcing positive selection no we are saying that post selected cells are going to be expanded in the thymus and if this process of just uh, presenting bacterial antigens in the thymus does not occur this expansion does not happen so your repertoire eventually is going to be just uh much less uh, rich right so because if we actually want to prove that this is it is likely expansion of positively selected cells otherwise just they would not be in the host so they would be just uh, dead or some somewhere else but uh so that one is a little bit easier to prove that they have been already positively positively selected and for that we also have the the markers that i think we're going to discuss later later on like 69 44 all of that stuff but for negative selection uh that's a little bit tricky because we need a completely different set of experiments to to, to actually show that something is being negatively depleted and it wasn't uh so much in the scope of our question so we just uh, address it as expansion of already selected in the mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I think that's all the terminology I have that we won't encounter, you know, in the script. So, uh, Dara, could you take us into the paper? Sure, Natalie. So, the large number of microorganisms that are living in the mammalian body surfaces have a highly co-evolved relationship with the immune system. Even though many of these microbes uh, carry out functions that are critical to host physiology and provide many advantages including uh, nutritional benefits and protection from pathogen infection, they can also pose a threat of breach with ensuing pathology. So that's why our immune system plays a very essential role in maintaining homeostasis with resident microbial communities to ensure that this mutualistic nature of host microbial relationship is maintained, which is to make sure that the commensal uh, microorganisms are contained within the lumen while limiting inflammatory uh, anti-commensal responses. The host tolerance to the potentially pathogenic bacterium is mediated by the induction of regulatory T-cells. 
or ITREX that selectively restrain the pro-inflammatory T helper 17 cells or TH17. Even though the local environment shapes the differentiation of effector cells, it is unclear how microbiota-specific T cells are also involved in this process. In humans, during the first three years of life, the composition of the microbiota progressively stabilizes to resemble that that is found in humans, uh, in adults, sorry. This corresponds to a period of expansion of the T cell repertoire. The importance of the microbiota in the education of T cells can be shown in mouse models where they use antibiotic, where the antibiotic treated and the germ-free mice express distinct intestinal T cell receptor repertoires compared to the mice with normal microbiota composition, suggesting that microbial antigens alter T cell development. So let's dive into this paper to see how the developing microbiota shapes the thymic and peripheral T cell repertoire. So Jatin, lead the way. Thanks for the introduction, Dara. Coming to the results, the first question that the authors were asking is, are there microbes in the thymus? The authors wanted to know how the gut microbiota-specific T-cell development is driven. To answer that, they looked at a specific group of commensal bacteria called segmented filamentous bacteria, or SFBs, a group that is closely related to Clostridia that drives the T-helper-17 responses in mice. The convenient thing about SFBs is that there are specific T-cell receptors have been identified and these T-cell receptors can be studied by using SFB tetramers, as Natalie described earlier. Uh, coming back to the experiment, the authors took specific pathogen-free mice and they colonized them with SFB. These mice were grouped into two age groups. One group received the SFB at the time of weaning, so we will call them the young mice. And the other group of mice were 12 week old when they received the SFB. We'll call these mice adult mice. Before I proceed ahead, Daniel, this is a question for you. Can you tell us what's the significance of introducing a bacteria at the time of weaning? What happens if the bacteria is introduced before weaning? Yeah, this is a really important question. So weaning by itself is not like a magic number. So we know that we have to wean the mice at around 21 days of age after they are born. But uh, basically, what we want is to separate these mice from from their from their moms, basically, and their microbiota is going to start developing, but it's starting to form right once they are weaned, because in the suckling period they are influenced by well by breast uh, milk and uh, there's it's pretty pretty naive the microbiota. So in that transition, we can basically put whatever bacteria we want, and it's going to establish nicely. Uh, that is one thing. Uh, but like I told you, it's 21 days, but it could be a few days earlier, a few days later. It won't make that much of a difference. But also we have to consider the size of these mice. It's pretty tricky to, to colonize these mice with uh, with bacteria when they're really young. So around 21 days, they are like at the perfect size. So you can just feed them the, the bacteria a couple of times because we just do two single covages for this SFB to colonize, which we then confirm in, in fecal pellets and stuff like that. But the younger they are, SFB could also colonize, but uh, to do it without harming the, the pup is going to be a little bit tricky. And that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is that it could be, uh, the results could be affected by the breast milk itself. And also if it's the other way around, if it's a little bit too late, uh, again, a few days won't make that much of a difference. But if we go all the way up to a week, uh, we oh, I think we tried, we didn't put it in the, in the, in the paper, but we tried like at four weeks, um, we saw almost no SFB specific tissues being generated in the same. So it is uh, flexible by a few days, mm -hmm. but it's still a pretty important uh, period of time where, uh, where, when this is occurring. Uh, but again, breast milk, easier gavage, uh, that those are critical points that we use, uh, where we chose this time point. Okay. And also it was like, there was also some other papers published that winning by itself is a critical time point for the immune system. Uh, so when the mice are right between 20 to 25 days, they have these peaks of uh, different pro-inflammatory genes and different infiltration of cells also as well, uh, which don't occur when the mice are too young. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's why we chose the winning. 
Okay, so you're saying there's this window of receptiveness near the weaning. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay, coming back. Uh, okay, uh, Natalie, do you have something? Yeah, um, I mean, in humans, it's kind of the same thing. You actually, uh, when like you are weaning a child off of breast milk, they will start to get sick and they will, you know, encounter more, uh, you know, as they're encountering more pathogens, just like out and about. And uh, that's often when they, they catch just like everything. And then after a while, they'll start to build up their own antibodies. And it was basically just because they, they don't have as many uh, antibodies from their mom. So again, like like a peak that's critical yes. within weaning. Yeah. Yeah, there's some, some relation between the antibodies they have and the microbes they're going to colonize, right? Yes, yes. It all depends on the breast milk itself. The, the amount of IgA that is in the breast milk is going to shape the whole repertoire and what the diversity of the microbiome is going gonna, is gonna to be. And it's interesting because the whole winning time in humans, is like it used to be like uh, known as three years and then the microbiota resembles the, the ones of uh, an adult human. Mm -hmm. But actually it's a little bit more flexible than that too. Like it's three to five years that is really pretty much different to what an adult microbiota is going to be. So it's not like a, it's like a set uh, time frame, but not a set uh, date, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Eugenio and Natalie, do you guys remember this paper we discussed last year about uh, breast milk induced IgAs that also set up the T-Rex in the gut of the offspring? Like, yeah, what, yeah. what if those T-Rex yeah. are important so that these bacteria don't get cleared out, right? Yeah. It's so complicated. It's, it's so many layers. Yes. yes, yes. <laughs> but also just to close this idea at winning another interesting thing that is happening is the replacement basically of these uh, immune cells uh, but uh, that are arriving as a, as a, during the fetal development uh, to, compared to those that are arriving from the bone marrow and the thymus itself. So there's this uh, transition between uh, fetal cells and bone marrow derived cells that is changing the whole immune repertoire. That it's, it's gonna change also how that host reacts to the microbiota. So a lot of changes happening are happening during weaning. Okay. Hey, so I'll come back to the results. After two weeks of colonization, the authors looked in the thymus for CD4 positive T cells specific to SFB using the tetramer approach. They found that there was an expansion of SFB specific bacteria in young mice but not in adult mice. The authors confirmed the results in another mouse that expresses SFB-specific transgenic TCR that the colonization with SFB indeed drove the expansion of these specific T-cells. There was no change in total thymocyte numbers or maturation, and no non-specific T-cells were seen to be expanding, signifying that this phenomen phenomenon is antigen-specific. Next, Let's check what kind of CD4 positive T cells are expanding. Most of these CD4 positive T cells that expanded in the response to SFB were not Tregs. They were negative for FOXP3 and CD25. These T cells were CD44 positive and CD69 positive. That shows that these are antigenically experienced. Daniel, I'll go back to very basics of immunology. We often use CD44 as a marker of memory T cells and CD69 as a marker for activated T cells. Can you tell us briefly if these surface markers also have a function related to the phenotype they afford to the T cells? Yeah, so it's pretty interesting how different are uh, in, in the thymus compared to everything that is outside the thymus. So we all know the CD44, CD62L, uh, map that we have to do for uh, memory, naive, whatever. Mm -hmm. But in the thymus CD44 is simply stating that a certain T cell has experienced antigen presentation. That is one thing. That's why when we found that these were mostly uh, CD44, it's like, okay, that's pretty nice because that means that they have recently encountered their respective antigen. Uh, that is for one thing. Then for C69, again, activation in the periphery and T cells ready to, to initiate a response or whatever. But in the thymus, we have to look at uh, C69 with, with TCR. And it's like a, basically like a developmental uh, change because when they are double negative for the 69 and TCR, that means that these cells are uh, really immature. Uh, they have no TCR, so they cannot see anything. But when they are 
uh, 69 positive without ACR. They are like, they are about to go into positive selection. Um, when they are double positive for 69 and TCR, it means that, oh, they are already semi-mature and they have also recently been exposed to antigen. That's why we have this 69 as well, high, and the TCR is high. And then eventually, as they are ready to migrate away from the thymus, they have to downregulate uh, CD69 because if it keeps up regulated, it's a signal for the cell to remain in the thymus and not to be exported. So as they mature and they are ready to leave the thymus, they need to keep their, their TCR like uh, positively expressed, but the 69 needs to go down. That's why in our cells in the SFB specific T cells that we find in the thymus is um, a, basically a gradient of cells that are double positive. So they have just passed positive selection and those that are positive only for TCR, meaning that we have cells that are about to migrate and those that are just coming out of selection. So we have a combination of those. Mm -hmm. This was an educational moment for me. I did not know that there are specific time rules for these, like compared to peripheries. So many, we all had to learn because we are not thymus people, we are <laughs> microbiota people. They're like, what is the thymus? Yeah, yeah, it was a learning process. <laughs> Yeah, this, is, this stuff is complicated, right? <laughs> it takes a lot of years before people find out what markers need to be taken for each cell in mm -hmm. tissue-specific context. Tissue. Yes, 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 definitely. Okay. So coming back to the result, what if these cells are circulating from other parts of the body and ending up in the thymus? We, we have to rule that out, right? To test this, the authors generated a GFP reporter mouse under the control of RAC2 gene that is activated in newly developed thymocytes. The authors also used a marker called CD73 that is often seen on circulating mature T cells. Using the GFP and CD73 markers, the authors showed that most of the SFB tetramer positive T cells were positive for GFP, meaning they were newly formed thymocytes, and negative for CD73, showing that they are not recirculating. The elegant, these elegant set of experiments provide evidence that these T cells specific to SFB are formed in the thymus after seeing the antigen and are not previously formed, let's say in the spleen or, or lymph nodes and just recirculating back into the thymus. Looking at the transcriptional profile, these T cells look like they have gone through positive selection and are ready to emigrate out of the thymus, just like Daniel mentioned. After four weeks of colonization in the young mice, these cells did gain CD73 expression, which means they were becoming circulating cells and possibly seeding different organs. To summarize this part, early colonization of SFB led to specific T cells being formed in the thymus, and these T cells were able to circulate to different parts of the body after four weeks. The next question, the authors would uh, would want to answer is, can microbes reach thymus? Because there has to be some way how these T cells or thymocytes in the thymus are receiving the antigen. Since there are T cells developing in the thymus in response to bacteria present in the gut, it makes sense to ask this question if the bacteria are able to migrate to the thymus. It is known that intestinal microbes can reach the mesenteric lymph nodes, but can they also reach other organs? The authors found that the after colonization in young mice, but not in adult mice. SFB DNA could be found in the mesenteric lymph nodes in the and the thymus. There was none, no DNA from SFB detected in the spleen and lungs and very little bit detected in the heart and liver. The authors used E. coli to see if they could replicate these findings with another bug and yes, they were able to find that E. coli DNA was in the thymus as well. The authors were not able to culture microbes from the thymus though. So it's possible that the amount of microbes is either too low or maybe they're not alive when they reach the thymus. These set of experiment hint towards a specific mechanism or path that brings these microbial antigens from the gut to the thymus. Yeah, this is getting very interesting at this point. <laughs> Yeah, so you may be wondering who or, you know, what kind of antigen-presenting uh, cell, APC, is educating these microbiota-specific T-cells. 
So the authors hypothesize that it might be from some kind of intestinal dendritic cell that migrates up to the thymus. And to support this hypothesis, there was a previous paper that had demonstrated that CX3, CR1 positive uh, dendritic cells could migrate from the intestine to the mesenteric lymph nodes, which are kind of right next door. So it follows that they might be able to go to other secondary lymphoid organs, or the thymus, which is primary. So now there are a few types of intestinal DCs, including those marked by CX3, CR1, and there's also those that are marked by CD103. Uh, the authors observed that the numbers of these DC types in mesenteric lymph nodes and thymus in young and adult mice following colonization with either SFB or E. coli, and found that colonization increased the CX3CR1 DCs in the thymus and the mesenteric lymph nodes of young mice. However, this was not the case for the CD103 positive DCs or for adult mice. Furthermore, other known APCs like B cells and plasmacytoid uh, dendritic cells didn't change during colonization. Really, DCs were most affected by the microflora. If they treated mice with antibiotics to destroy the microflora, this resulted in a decrease of thymic uh, dendritic cells. Interestingly, the authors showed that the sort of APCs traveling from the intestine to the MLNs and thymus change as the mice age, which was echoed by a change in expression of chemokine ligands in the thymus as the mice aged. So Daniel, what do you think drives this change and how might this contribute to the aging of the immune system? Yeah, that's a really important question. Well, if you look actually at the paper, we're not really studying old mice because like 12 weeks of age, they're still like pretty, pretty young. Not like as young as like right at winning, but they are adult, young adult mice. So if, it would be really interesting to see what's happening in really old mice, like two years old mice. Like uh, that would be super interesting. But the main thing that we see when we compare like mice at winning and, and adult mice is uh, the production of different uh, chemokines by the thymus, mainly CCR5 and CX3CR1 ligands. That is critical, like day and night. But also the other interesting thing is in the gut, we lose a specific subset of these CX3CR1 dendritic cells. We, we lose the CCR5 positive cells. And we don't know why, it's something that we're still studying to see, is this just uh, being downregulated as the, as the mice age? or is simply this is a different subset that just disappears uh, with, with age, with the stabilization of the microbiota. Uh, so those are two things that we are actively studying, but definitely the key thing is that we lose this population in the gut and that we lose the, the respective chemokines coming from the thymus. Okay, can I can I ask something here? Uh, you mentioned, Natalie, there are there were two types of DCs looked at, C CX3, CR1 positive DCs and the CD103 positive DCs. Uh, Daniel, can you tell us if one thing we need to know about these two DCs that separates them? Well, the main thing is the the, migra the migratory character. We all know that CD103s are, were the conventional dendritic cells that induce T-Rex and the MLN and stuff like that. CX3s, however, they're a hard population to study because sometimes they behave like macrophages and they just like to sit in the gut lamina propria, sample antigens and just induce local responses. But they also, because they are coming from basically from monocytes, basically these are monocyte derived macrophages. But uh, until recently, until that paper that you mentioned that uh, it was shown that uh, according to the microbiota, these cells could migrate to the, to the MLN as well. Uh, and actually, there was a paper from my PI that she, she showed that. And until that time, it wasn't known that these cells that had like more macrophage, uh, more macrophage profile than the cells, that they could also migrate. So they have characteristics of both dendritic cells and macrophages. But the main difference between CX3s and CD103s is, uh, well, we found the expression of XCR1 and SERP alpha, which is just marker of migration. And the CX3s were able to migrate just much more than the CD103s. And of course, the CX3s cannot cross-present cross antigen at all. It's just a classic MHC2-dependent uh, pathway of antigen presentation. So those are the, the main differences, uh, but we find that the CX3CR1s are just so plastic because they can induce TH1 responses when necessary, but also just like the conventional CD103s and dendritic cells, they can also induce uh, the expansion of regulatory T cells. They can stay resident in the, in the colon 
or when there are changes in the microbiota uh, population, they can migrate to the MLN or now to the thymus. So we are really interested in the plasticity of these CX3CR1 positive dendritic cells or macrophages, whatever you, according to what are you studying, is that you're going to call them macrophage or dendritic cells. Okay, thanks. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, going back to the paper, uh, kind of what it, I had been talking about was all kind of circumstantial evidence that suggests that these DCs are capable of going to the thymus, but are they really the APCs necessary for expanding those thymus uh, microbiota-specific T cells? So to answer this question, the authors used a mouse model with the Depthyria toxin receptor, and that was under the control of the CX3CR1 promoter. This means that if you treat those mice with Depthyria toxin, any mice expressing CX3CR1 will, uh, any cells expressing CX3CR1 will die, and that mouse just won't have that population any longer. So it's a more genetic way to manipulate that population. They use littermate controls without this genetic modification as controls. So the mice were treated with diphtheria toxin and then colonized with the SFB. And the mice that were lacking the CX3CR1 cells had reduced thymic SFB-specific T cell expansion. Moreover, there was less bacteria, 16SDNA in the thymus and MLNs, suggesting that DCs weren't bringing the bacteria bits into those organs anymore. Lastly, they used a mouse model where CX3CR1 cells lose their MHC class 2, which is necessary for the antigen presentation of those SFB components. Um, and this was when treated with tamoxifen, they would, they would lose it. So once again, upon tamoxifen treatment, the thymic SFB-specific T cells decreased, but the SFB DNA level did not. Uh, Daniel? One quick note that is pretty interesting is that when we deplete CX3CR1 positive cells, that accounts of multiple populations. So it's the macrophage slash dendritic cell in the gut, but also the incoming monocytes to the gut. And mm -hmm. some T-Rex also express CX3CR1. So we had to be a little bit more specific. And that's why we use also these mice in which only C11C positive CX3CR1 positive are deleted. And that's why we focus only on the macrophage slash dendritic cell population, just to clarify that. No, that's a good note. Um, so overall, these data show that those CX3CR1 DCs can migrate from the intestine to the thymus, where they serve as an important interface between the gut microbiome and nascent T cells in young mice. So these CX3CR1 DCs present bacterial antigens to T cells and promote the expansion of microbiome-specific T cells in young mice. Thank you, Natalie. And now that the authors have shown the expansion of microbiota-specific T cells in thymus, they aim to test if they were functional for the cognitive antigen. In order to test this, they use a T cell transfer model of colitis. The authors colonized mice with, with SFB or E. coli and two weeks later, they isolated naive thymic T cells and transferred them into rat knockout mice, colonized with SFB or E. coli. And at this point, Daniel, I want to ask you a question. You, in this experiment, you took all naive T cells from uh, a thymus, but you didn't purify uh, with tetramers. How difficult was to perform this experiment? Yes, the, the main reason why we didn't purify with tetramers was because of um, it would be impossible because if you think about it, we would we inject uh, like 400,000 cells per mouse, okay? And uh, so to inject 10 mice, we need 4 million cells. But if you think about it, on average, in young mice, we have after SFB colonization, only 400 SFB-specific T cells. So if we want to do a transfer of SFB-specific T cells, we would need to do just 10 mice, we would need 10,000 mice. Of, uh, so it's pretty much impossible, although one of the reviewers actually wanted us to do it. So we said, nope. Uh, so that's impossible. But the good thing of just transferring uh, all naive CD4 T cells from the thymus is first is that we knew that these cells were, uh, were not T-Rex, so we could get rid of that population. And then the other thing is that uh, this is, uh, the tetramer is recognizing a single clone, right, of the, of the, of the SFB specific T cells. That's the only thing. But of course, there's not only one single clone that is going to be formed. It's going to be multiple clones. Uh, maybe some of them are going to be negative, negatively selected. 
we don't know. But we know for sure that this is not the only clone. So, so actually, it could be a, around a thousand, perhaps a couple of thousands of SFB-specific diesels, uh, accounting for all the different clones that could be induced by colonizing this mice. So we were taking advantage of that idea that it's going to be actually a couple thousand cells that are already in that pool of millions of, of naive CD4 diesels. Uh, that what, by the time that we got or we transfer the mice to the Arachnop uh, recipient mice, they should uh, be likely, it should be likely for them to recognize their own antigen in the gut, the SFB. And uh, luckily for us, that's what happened. Otherwise, yeah, because we were worried that it could be a little bit too diluted for the effect to be seen, but it was exactly the other way around. It was, the effect was pretty strong because uh, I don't know if you saw in the data, but uh, that time we followed the rack knockout, knockout mice that were transferred with C4, uh, single positive tissue from the thymus that were colonized with SFB, uh, they showed colitis and uh, weight loss at four weeks of age. They were like, we had to suck them because the, the disease was so strong when normally this model should last around eight weeks of age. So, in, so when we juice cells from young mice, this process was basically catalyzed by half. Like it was just twice faster than, than the normal mice. But when we used cells from older mice, the process just took, uh, we only showed four weeks just to match it with the young mice. So at four weeks, nothing happened, but we followed them also at eight weeks and at eight weeks there was barely any difference. So it was pretty interesting how strong were these uh, naive C4 T cells uh, from young mice in response to the actual, uh, the respective antigen. Thank you, Daniel. So going back to the results, uh, the authors found that SFP colonized recipients exhibit weight loss, T-cell infiltration, and a lot of IL-17 producing cells. Only in the group transferred with the Timic T-cells from an SFP colonized donors compared to the uncolonized donors. Among the T-cells that infiltrate the tissue, the authors observed an increased proportion of SFP-specific T-cells that were raw gamma-positive, the TH17 master transcription factor. And, at the same, and the same happened when Timic T-cells from the E. coli colonized donor were transferred into E. coli colonized recipients. But now the T-cells were skewed to a TH1 phenotype, as expected. Um, the authors confirmed that this was not happening when using adult T-cells as donors. And this is really, really important because the whole paper uh, goes to back to this idea of, of a short uh, time of, of a, a specific time uh, during um, development. This process was also dependent on dendritic cells, and when they, they deplete these CX3CR1 dendritic cells, this was not happening. And also when these dendritic cells couldn't present antigens by depleting MHC2 on these T cells on the on the dendritic cells as well by uh, treating the animals with antibiotics. So this is all that been really interesting and the cherry at the top of this work was the following, the following experiments. The authors found that the microbiota specific T-cells could protect uh, from infection by cross-reactive mechanisms. The authors found E. coli cross-reactive T-cells in salmonella infected mice. In this setting, the authors proved that E. coli specific T-cells protected mice against salmonella. Salmonella. Daniel, can you expand a little bit more about the importance about this result and its relevance for understanding immunity? Yeah, this is pretty interesting because we were actually not gonna put that experiment there, but we said like, okay, we have all of this T-cell transfer data, but it's all saying a lot of negative things about these newly generated SFB-specific T-cells. What positive can they do? How is this, why is this required for, the, for a young host, right? So we did uh, this protection experiment in which we took uh, both a commensal E. coli and salmonella, which is uh, pretty, pretty similar to, to E. coli. And we say like, perhaps, and this is trying to answer your question, uh, uh, one of the reasons why this process is occurring is to induce immunity through the to the host by molecular mimicry. So we said like, okay, this is gonna, this process is gonna generate a bunch of E. coli specific T cells, which should cross react to salmonella trying to infect the gut and just attack it, clear it, and avoid mortality from the host. And that's exactly what we did in the experiment. Um, in young mice, we colonized them with E. coli, 
And after that, we colonize it with salmonella. And in only those colonized with E. coli, we see protection against uh, salmonella-related mortality. Then to make sure uh, it was through T-cells, we depleted the T-cells or we use an uh, isotype control. And we saw that it was all dependent on T-cells. And the other thing that it didn't, we didn't put in the paper because we just did it. You're like, okay, so I'm guessing that this shouldn't happen in older hosts, right? And we did exactly the same experiment in, in mice at 12 weeks of age, and we don't see any protection at all, which is super nice. It means that, again, that is just something that needs to happen when they are like young and right after winning. Daniel, I had this specific question. I'm not sure if you've already mentioned this, but am I hearing that these T cells that are against SFB, they can be sometimes protective and sometimes they are killing the cross-reactive bacteria? Yeah, we believe that this is uh, a process common for perhaps all bacteria that are arriving to the gut. I mean, they're going to induce uh, specific T-cell responses against them, which should help in a beneficial way to just control them because you don't want outgrowth of pretty much anything. Uh, that's why everything, eventually everything is going to be stable, right? There's not going to be some predominant species, otherwise that's just dysbiosis and you don't want that. Uh, so it's going to be beneficial for the host because it's going to keep everything in, in equilibrium and it's going to prevent pathogenic infections through by cross reactivity. But when the host has some kind of immunodeficiency, for example, like the arachnocot mice, an extreme case, right? Lack of uh, T-Rex or lack of IL-10 or SNPs in IL-10 production or stuff like that, then we can see these cells that actually should be beneficial for the host have a more pathogenic effect as well and cause uh, auto-inflammatory disorders and autoimmunity as well. Okay. Thank you very much, Daniel. And I think we can move on to our discussion with Dara. Okay, thanks, Eugenio. So, Daniel, uh, in your first experiment, after you colonized the B6 mice with uh, SFB, you, you guys found that there was an expansion of SFB specific to the 40 cells in the thymus of the young mice, but not in the adults. So I'm just wondering why aren't the adults able to form specific T cells after microbial colonization? Well, the main thing is that the CX3, CR1, and 3T cells are no longer getting there in such large numbers. That is the, the main thing that could be different because I know if you see in our kick yard experiments, the CX3s are still getting there but compared to the young mice, the amount is so little, it, it, the mm. percentage is just so low that it just could not be enough. That is one thing that could happen. The other thing is that the CX3CR1DCs from adult mice are just uh, not able to leave the gut. So they don't have the, the equipment necessary to break the collagen around. It just needs to stay in the gut. That is the other thing. The other thing that could happen with these cells is that they just uh, are programmed to just go tops to the MLN and that's it. So there are many different variations of why this could happen, or it could be something from the thymus side as well. There's just simply not T cells being generated that could be uh, triggered to expand upon CX3 presentation of bacterial antigens. So it could be a fault between the APC, the CX3 disease, uh, the traffic between gut and thymus, or the thymus mm -hmm. itself, and there's just no production of these new uh, T cells, right? That should be expanded. So it's something that we have to we have to identify, and uh, and we're in the process of, of doing that. Are you saying okay. Are you saying that these microbes, when you put them in the adult mice, they they do colonize their guts, just not getting trafficked? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we don't find any bacterial antigen in the thymus of adult mice. They just don't get there. Okay. Which is also important to know because that shows that there's this is not occurring because of changes in gut permeability mm -hmm. or just free floating bacterial antigens that somehow get to the thymus. So, yeah. Okay. So the next one, so we learned that the intestinal microorganisms are trafficked from the intestine by, to the thymus by the intestinal dendritic cells, which you know, present the microbiota-derived antigens to induce the expansion of the specific microbiota-specific T cells, which is, I think, different from the metalloid thymic epithelial cells and some other thymus resident 
antigen, antigen for sending cells. So I'm just wondering, what do you think are the molecular mechanisms that, that underlie this, this expansion? Yeah, this is a tough one. So we have recently, because the idea is to just continue to like a second part of this project. And we have two ideas right now. One is to explain why is this stopping after mice leave the winning period. And the second one is to say, okay, what if we reactivate this process in adult mice? Is this good or bad? So we have two different stories that uh, we're working on that right now. But uh, what we have done is basically isolate this CX3CR1 positive or negative disease from the thymus, from the colon, from young mice, from adult mice. And right now we're trying to see, okay, what is different between these dendritic cells as mice age, as, uh, as they move around the body, is something changing? And what we see right now is, at least from the dendritic cells themselves, is the ability for them to induce T-cell activation uh, when they are young, but it doesn't happen as, as much uh, when they are older. The ability for them to leave the gut, so they uh, they release a lot of metalloproteases that allows them to just uh, move around whenever they want, and this is done regulated in adult in, in adult CX3s in the gut. And yeah. also, we see a bunch of this is all unpolished, of course. And this we see a bunch of uh, semaphorine pathways. Uh, so basically, the CX3s from adult mice don't have the semaphorine pathway, so they cannot move or locate accordingly in the thymus because they could get there. But the, pro the question is, where in the thymus are you going to be that you should be able to induce these effects of expansion nerves? So that is one thing. And the other thing that we are trying to identify now is if there is a, a defect on the T cells by themselves. Uh, but that's a little bit tricky because we have nothing to compare the young SFB specific T cells because from the thymus because in the older mm -hmm. thymus there's just none of those cells so what do we compare it to uh that's something we're trying to work around uh but i'm pretty sure if there were presence in in, in adult mice uh once they are presented with the right antigen they should be able to expand if the cx3 yeah. is still able to do it but to actually pinpoint the actual molecular mechanism is a little bit tricky it's a little bit tricky yeah okay so last point, Daniel. So what about the microbiota from the non-intestinal sites, like the skin? Do you think they can also educate the thymic T cells as well? Oh yeah, that's actually super interesting. And it's something we would like to do, but we don't do much skin microbiota, but but it's super interesting because I know if you see when we use the antibiotics, uh, we don't see a total uh, lack of dendritic cells in the thymus. We only see uh, some kind of uh, decrease but there's still some of them getting there because the antibiotics that we use are, it's not like super broad spectrum antibiotics. It's just ampicillin and streptomycin. It's gonna get rid of most, uh, but not all of the microbiota. And we don't know if, if it's effect in, in the skin and other mucosal tissues. So there's definitely gotta be uh, some way of this colonizing microbes in the skin or, or other mucosa that are going to be able to, to reach the thymus somehow. We don't know if it's through the same uh, APC. Perhaps it's going to be an APC that is more conventional in these tissues. And we don't know if it's going to trigger the same response. Perhaps it just uh, induces a bunch of T-Rex and that's it. So that's something that, that should be studied, but it's a really, really interesting topic. Mm -hmm. Do you know how do you even, how do you even colonize the skin how what kind of treatment would you do well, the, the moment you're born you're already colonized with whatever microbiota was in uh, according to the mode of delivery right okay. but but it's a lot of a lot of uh, stuff <laughs> staphylococcus yeah yeah bunch of epidermidis uh, and stuff like that uh so you could you could colonize it i'm pretty sure you could there's already studies that show colonization and what apcs are uptaking and how do you induce t-rex against specific but there's nothing linking the thymus yet mm -hmm. so so that would be really interesting to show that wow. yeah the study opens up so many potential projects oh yes so so many because Okay, we, we know that the CX3s are mediating this, but we still don't know how exactly. So what is happening in the gut for this to be allowed? There's the presence of these, you know, openings in the gut that allows for like sampling of the bacteria. Is it changing as the mice age? Uh, is this just closed so the CX3s can no longer sample as efficiently as before? And the traffic is the 
the chemokine signal in just is stronger in the gut compared to the thymus as, my, as mice get older or not. And even more, like what happens when the mice are in, under some kind of inflammation? Is this process restarted? Is this beneficial or not? Does it have a role in autoimmunity? How about in, in aging immune system? Uh, there's so many questions that we can, we can answer with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you imagine a few decades ago, people used to think our organs are sterile? <laughs> Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, that, that is that is that is pretty interesting. And even now, there's so much debate about the the microbiota from the unborn child, right? Like mm-hmm. in the placenta and stuff like that. There's a lot of papers that, oh yeah, no, this is a clean uh, a clean organ, and whatever you find is just contamination from your tools or whatever. And there's a bunch <laughs> of new papers that say, you know what? There's a well-established microbiota here, so we should really pay attention to this. So so it's super interesting how everything it just as you know, technologies and approaches become much more refined, we have much better answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you guys don't have anything else to add to discussion, I can start the summary. So for anybody who is listening to us and fell asleep during any part of this, or you just are like me and sometimes lose concentration, here is what we talked about. First, intestinal colonization by bacteria in early life leads to specific T-cell development in the thymus. After colonization, microbial DNA can be found in the thymus and mesenteric lymph nodes, but not in other organs like spleen and lungs. The microbial antigens are trafficked from the intestine to the thymus via intestinal dendritic cells that are marked by CX3CR1 expression. And lastly, the thymocytes specific to these antigens can circulate to other organs when they become T-cells and can either have a pathogenic effect or even can have a protective effect against related pathogens. So with that, we have concluded this paper and I think it would be a good good time point to wrap up the discussion. Thanks a lot, Daniel, for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, uh, Dara, Eugenio and Natalie for this wonderful discussion. Thank you. For for our audience, if you're interested in know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find out our blogs, journal clubs, and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com or just hit us uh, on Facebook or Twitter. With that, I'm your host, Jatin Sharma, signing off. Until we meet again, bye-bye. Bye. 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 bye.